0: We're in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups, on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And it divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now this is a passage that seems like uh, it's just mainly talking about a giant picnic. Uh, And yet the title of the, the sermon is the meaning of life. So how are we gonna draw something as grand as the meaning of life from a message, a passage I should say, about a picnic. Uh, it kind of reminds me of this passage in this verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple verses there that goes like this. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Okay. Now, right there, what, what the, uh, the wise man is doing is connecting two dots that we don't often connect. The dot, one dot being your eating, and the other dot being the meaning of life. Okay. Apart from God, what is the purpose to eating? Why do we eat? Why do we sustain ourselves? Why do we live? And that's what this passage gives us. Um, here's, here are three things. I want to break it down into three points. And here are the three things that this passage shows us. Uh, the meaning that's behind this passage, and that's who Jesus is. And why you need this meaning, and that's what Jesus did. And how you can get this meaning. How you can follow Jesus. Okay? Okay? So what is the meaning behind this passage? Okay, referring to who Jesus is, why you need this meaning, referring to what Jesus did, how you can acquire this meaning okay, and that's referring to how you can follow him. all right so point number one, the meaning behind this passage okay, the meaning behind this passage is the identifying of Jesus as the shepherd king that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, the one who will come to save and win over his people. Now, if you look at verse 34, it says this. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that expression, sheep without a shepherd, uh, is a very clear reference, and actually a direct quote um, taken from the book of Numbers, chapter 27. Moses, nearing his death, prays to God for a leader who will succeed him, continue to lead Israel through the wilderness into the promised land. And here's the prayer that he prays in chapter 27 in the book of Numbers. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them, come in before them, who shall lead them out, bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So, the Lord then appoints Joshua, they get into the Promised Land, but you know the story, what happens after that? Do they hold on to the Promised Land? No, the Israelites, they, they rebel against God, disobey His laws, they demand to have their own king, right, they, they sort of dethrone God as their king, they, they raise their own king of their own choosing. And that leads to Israel's gradual downfall and ultimately they, they become exiles. And they do become sheep without a shepherd in the wilderness. Okay? Now here's what King David wrote in a sort of prophetic manner in, in his Psalms, and in his most well-known psalm, no less, in Psalm 23. He prophesies about a shepherd who will come and finally, finally and ultimately save God's people and deliver them. It's short enough a psalm and good enough a psalm to actually read in its entirety. So let me, let me read that for you. And, and for those of you who memorize it, in Sunday school, it's a good refresher. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now what David is talking about here, and especially when you look at the context that he was in, kingdom falling apart, okay? He's saying we had enough human authorities, human judges, human priests, human kings. What we really need is the Lord to be our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. We need the Lord to come and save us from our our restlessness and truly satisfy our deepest longings. We need this shepherd to come and be our king, that's what he's saying. We need a better shepherd king in the Lord. It must be the Lord. And Mark is very intentional, very intentional here in pointing to Jesus as that shepherd king. The parallelism here is is unmistakable. It's so clear. There's there's virtually no commentator uh, who doesn't draw the connection between Mark chapter 6 and Psalm 23. Every commentary you read, they they point you back to Psalm 23 when they get to Mark chapter 6. In Psalm 23, for example, verse 2, he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. Mark chapter 6, starting from verse 31. Jesus said, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest, rest. And then verse 39, look what it says there. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Why? Why mention the green grass? To refer back to the green pastures in Psalm 23. And he, it says in Psalm 23, He makes me lie down. And it says in Mark chapter 6, He commanded them all to sit down in groups. Okay? You can't miss the parallel uh, structure here. There's more. It says in Psalm 23, verse 4 and 5, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and my cup overflows. My cup overflows. There's an overabundance. And what does Mark 40, uh, mm-hmm. chapter 6, verse 42 and 43 say? They all ate and were satisfied. That's a synonym to comfort it. We're satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Right? The baskets overflowed. There was an overabundance. okay. Isaiah, the prophet talks about this too the shepherd king in Isaiah 25 and this was in our call to worship he says on a mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food of rich food full of marrow and this Lord of hosts he says will swallow up death forever wipe away tears from all faces and it will be said on that day behold this is our God we have waited for him that he might save us this is the Lord we have waited for him You see where Mark is going with this passage now? By presenting us this feast in the wilderness through this shepherd king who makes his people lie down in green pastures. And Mark is saying, Jesus is his Lord of hosts. Jesus is his Lord of hosts who will swallow up death, lead his people to green pastures and feed them and provide for them. Because here they are, the Israelites, in Mark chapter 6, in a desolate place, in the wilderness, led to green pastures, fully fed, fully satisfied. And and miraculously, at that, very much like the way God fed the Israelites through the wilderness, right, With, with manna, bread from heaven. And here's Jesus feeding them miraculous food, miraculous bread, but not out of heaven, not out of the sky, out of himself. He is he is the source of this bread. See, the point of Jesus' miracle is always this. It's always identifying who he is. Like, it was never simply to wow and amaze people. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever wondered, you know, why doesn't Jesus just kind of, kind of fly around a little bit, you know, do a few rounds in the sky and just you know, make things levitate. You know? And that would just wow and amaze all the unbelievers and turn them into believers just like that. Right? The point of Jesus' miracles is not that. It's not to wow and to astonish and to amaze people. The point of Jesus' miracles was always to identify Him. Identify Him as this long-awaited Messiah, the one prophesied about in the Old Testament. That's why His miracles were always so purposeful uh, and not just sensational. It's not meant to sensationalize Jesus, but to identify Jesus as a shepherd king. He's the shepherd king that Moses prayed for in Numbers. He's the shepherd king that David sang about in the Psalms. He's the shepherd king that Isaiah prophesied about in the book of Isaiah. It's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to Him. That's the meaning behind this passage. It's identifying who Jesus is. He's the shepherd king. The shepherd king that's been promised all along. Now, point number two. Why do we need this meaning? Why do we need this shepherd king in any way? Do we really need Him? Uh, What's really interesting in this passage is the fact that Jesus doesn't offer the people bread as the first and foremost thing and the people didn't run after him for bread as the first and foremost thing
1: bread here is
0: presented as a secondary thing although in this context in the worthiness right and for these people bread bread means life it means survival right to us bread is like it's like when we're tired of rice right but, but to them bread is it like that's That's what they live on, right? No bread, no life. Yet, bread is not the main thing here. Did you notice that? If you look again at verse 34, it says here, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? And the word compassion here means this deep sense of empathy and desire to comfort someone. Out of that compassion, what does Jesus do? And he began to teach them teach them many things. Not feed them, teach them. He taught them, he preached to them the gospel. He was always about preaching the gospel. That was the primary thing. And this is where we hit something very sort of deep underneath of the foundation of the Christian worldview. It's this very basic premise about what gives meaning to human existence It's not physical sustenance. It's not survival. It's not bread. We need something more. And what's that? What do we need more than survival? And that we need to be taught. We need to be taught that. More than survival, more than bodily sustenance, what we need is for our lives to have meaning. 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 More than survival, we need for our lives to be meaningful. And we need to be taught that because we live, we can, and we do live in large part in ignorance of that meaning. We just strive for survival. We strive for survival. We live in ignorance of the fact that nothing in life is actually meaningful if nothing lasts. If all ends at death, at the grave. Nothing is really meaningful. And we need it to be pushed to think these sort of meta thoughts. We need to be taught to think this way. We need to be asked Do you know? Do you know what will last beyond your grave? Whatever it is that you're pursuing right now, will it carry you into eternity? We have to ask these things. We have to be taught to ask. These things, and 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 this is this is the kind of talk. Where, whenever we get to this part about you know, death and the meaning of life, you know, some are bound to feel this is just too bleak. I mean, it's just dark. It's brooding. It's, it's 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 borderline depressing. Me, why why go there? Isn't it bleak to think about death? And and the answer is no, if you have an answer for it, if you have a res- proper response to it. it, it's it's sort of like. The, um, there are two ways of talking about weddings, and, and I've been talking a lot about weddings with people. It was just love is in the air, right? People are getting married. We're talking about engagement, we're talking about weddings, and and I'm noticing there, there are two there's there, there's two types of conversations about weddings. Uh, one is prior to the wedding, and that conversation is very different. It's very it's it's all stress. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of uh, nervousness. There's anxiety. There's there's things that you're, you're, you're worried might not work out, might not go well, and you're just, you're overthinking. Right? That's one conversation about a wedding. And then there's another conversation, and that's with those who are on the other side of the wedding. Who've gone through it, who've been on the other side, and survived. Right? They're alive and well. And when you talk to them about it, it's totally different. It's, it's, it's a joy. It's, it's good memories. It's, it's a fondness. And it's even a place where, where they can actually uh, impart counsel and advice from. It's a good place. Two very different uh, conversations about it. Why? Because on on one on the one hand, there are people who've gone to the other side and have survived. Right? And then on the other hand, there are people who are still approaching it, and they're, they're kind of like, oh, will I make it? Will I make it through? When Christians talk about death, it ought to be about it in, in a manner in which... Someone has gone over to the other side and have survived. Right? We have Christ, the resurrected one, who have gone over to the other side of the grave, come back, and he's gonna lead us in the same way. And I've shared this with some of you. I think this is a, maybe a more direct illustration. Um, when Scott Derrickson, the film director, was asked, why do you, as a Christian, direct so many horror films? And what he said? He said, I direct horror movies because I am a Christian. It's because I have an answer to death. I know who defeated death. And that means I can mock death in its face. I can put it in a movie, a medium for entertainment, and laugh at its face. Now, this is not my way of encouraging you to watch horror movies, but I'm saying there's something very profound about what he's saying there. Do you know that death has lost its sting? Do you know that you have an answer to that? Do you know that when you talk about death, it doesn't have to be all bleak, dark, and brooding? We have Christ who's been on the other side and survived. Christians are people who've been on the other side of death through Christ. It's not bleak, not when you have a good response to it. You can actually laugh at his face, you can rejoice. And that's why Christians get to, not have to, not force, we get to talk about death and the meaning of life. And at the same time, at the same time, on the flip side of that, we can talk about all the rest of life. All the beautiful things and the meaningful things in life, like marrying, creating families, raising children, or working to better society. We can talk about all these things seriously now, meaningfully now because we have an answer to death. Thomas Nagel, he's a philosopher at NYU, he's an atheist. And he wrote in his book, What Does It All Mean? Uh, This very interesting line. Quote, since the grave is life's only goal, the grave is life's only goal, it is ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously. Since the grave is life's only goal, it is ridiculous to take our lives so seriously. We shouldn't want our lives to, quote, matter from the outside. Meaning, matter objectively, matter truly. That's asking too much, he says. You can say, we all get to create our own meaning, but to want that self-made meaning to be truly meaningful, that's ridiculous, he says. As a secularist, that's that's ridiculous, that's a big ask. It's asking for something this material, naturalistic, godless universe cannot give you. True meaning. And he goes on to say later, even if you conjure up a meaning that you believe in firmly, you think it's a good meaning because it will make a difference, whether it's producing a great work of literature, helping the planet, promoting diversity, all that good stuff. From the secular worldview, in the end, the difference you make won't make a difference. The difference you make won't make a difference in the end. In fact, he says, it wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And even if you did, the difference you make wouldn't matter either. Whether you existed or not, doesn't matter in the end. It all ends in death. It all ultimately comes to nothing. It'll be all forgotten anyway.
1: So the question remains,
0: like when you remain in that worldview, the question remains why live? Why get out of bed? Why get dressed for work? Why eat? Why eat anything? What's the meaning behind it all? So the wise man in Ecclesiastes is right. If God is not behind it all, there's no point in rejoicing in even the food that we eat. See, the reason why Jesus focused the majority of his time on teaching, teaching and not putting food in their bellies, is for this reason, to give them the why. What's more important than the food is a reason for the food. More important than what I will eat today is why I will eat today. Why I should live. And in both Psalm 23, Isaiah 25, the, the premise for eating And not just eating, but feasting in this rested state is the defeat of death. The Lord of hosts has swallowed up death and victory. So let's feast, let's eat, let's celebrate. The celebration of this shepherd king was all about celebrating this rediscovery of the meaning of life in the defeat of death. That's what it meant for the Jewish people. That's what it meant for the ancient Israelites. And it may have been more immediate to them because they are living under colonial rule. They're living under persecution, subjugation, poverty. Perhaps this defeat over death was more celebratory for them because death was more immediate to them. And perhaps it's not as talked about and, and it's not as you know in our face today because we, we live in a very lucrative society, very well-off society. It's a wealthy society. We're very comfortable where we are. But at the same time, at the same time, it doesn't change our trajectory. We're all headed to the grave. The rich and the poor. The premise here for eating. Feasting is the defeat of death. That's always the context of this biblical feast. The Lord of hosts has defeated sin and its final weapon, death. When we realize this, and we realize why we need this, here's what will happen. And here's how you know you've grasped it. You won't settle for anything less. You won't settle for rejoicing in anything less than this. Because everything else you rejoice in has meaning only because of this. You will celebrate this as the greatest achievement in your life. God's defeat over death. And we won't settle for other things. We won't settle for idols. Idols. What are idols? It's what we learn in the Catechism. Idolatry is seeking and created things meaning, significance, and security. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with seeking meaning and security and significance in creative things? Well, maybe that is why everyone around us, including ourselves, struggle so hard to be happy, to be satisfied, to be content. It's not ultimately satisfying. It's not ultimately meaningful. It's not ultimately significant and it's not ultimately secure. So we keep moving on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Here's an excerpt uh, from an interview um, in The Atlantic with this professor at the uh, University of Texas. and uh, The article is interesting. The, the title itself is interesting. That's why it caught my attention. The, I, the article is titled, Why So Many Smart People Aren't Happy. Why So Many Smart People Aren't Happy. It's like, am I supposed to feel good about that title? It's like, if I'm smart, then I'm not happy. But if I'm not happy, that means I'm smart. (laughs) So it's like, hmm. But anyway, it made me read it. Quote, here's an excerpt. Think about the need for competence. One approach is to engage in what people call social comparisons, that is, wanting to be the best at doing something or something like that. And there are many problems with this approach. One big problem with this is that it's very difficult to assess. What are the yardsticks for judging somebody on a particular dimension? What are the yardsticks for being the best professor? Is it about research, teaching? Even if you take only teaching, it is, is it the ratings you get from the students, or is it the content that you deliver in class, or the number of students who pass an exam or take, t- take a test and do really well in it? It becomes very difficult to judge because these yardsticks become increasingly ambiguous as a field becomes narrower or more technical. Okay. Happiness, the more you try to pursue it, right, what you find yourself doing is you're really trying to, trying to compare yourself to others in a particular social environment you're in and you're trying to measure up to whatever yardstick they give you, the, measure, the measurement they give you. And it seems to always change, always evolve, it's elusive, it escapes you. And that's why the more you strive for happiness, what you realize in the end is the less happy you are. Or isn't that ironic? The more you strive for happiness, the more unhappy you become. The takeaway here is, the more you make happiness the goal, the farther you will get from happiness. Happiness is not meant to be the goal. Happiness is meant to be the byproduct of you discovering something greater than happiness, and that is meaning. Meaning. The Bible has always stated that that meaning is God, and God Himself, not in created things, not made-up yardsticks and standards and measurements of success and recognition. It's God. The ultimate standard. That's why when we love something more than God Himself, we we turn that thing into a false God, a false standard to live by, and we forget about this true God, and we idolize that thing. We we raise that thing to be our God, and we, we worship it, we follow it, we obey it with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's sin in a nutshell. It's loving something more than God, loving the gift more than the giver. Loving, loving creation more than the Creator. You know, today is Mother's Day, um, and, and it's a day we give our, our moms the, the one thing we all ought to give them, and that is our deepest and sincerest thanks. Right? Gratitude. They, they chose to bear us, conceive us, right? And then give birth, nurture us, educate us, work and save to spend on us made tremendous sacrifices to get us here. Whenever people say, you know, have you thought about how inconvenient uh, it is for a woman to become pregnant? Of course it. Is. When was the last time a mother gave birth saying, I did it because it was convenient for me? They chose to sacrifice. That's why we give them thanks. That's why we recognize them. That's why they're Amazing made tremendous sacrifices to get us here. And therefore, there is something deeply wrong about a child who doesn't give thanks, wouldn't you say? Who doesn't show any signs of gratitude to their mother. Or, if a son were to love the gifts from the mother more than the person, wouldn't you say that's being, there's something deeply wrong about that, there's something very deeply ungrateful about that. The same goes for God. Right? If there is a God, and He created us out of nothing, nothing, we are nothing created us, gave us life, created us in His image, and He's sustaining us even still now, putting air in our lungs. He's holding everything in His universe together as we speak so that we would be breathing air. Then we owe Him everything, all of our affections, all of our attention, all of our gratitude, all of our thanks. And we have to love Him, thank Him, obey Him more than anything else. With every breath we draw, we we become more indebted to Him. We need to restore this heart of gratitude. But we often don't live in this gratitude. Just as Mother's Day reminds us, we ought to give thanks. We need to be taught that we need to thank God and recognize Him as the source of all good things, the source of our meaning. But here's the amazing thing about God. He comes to us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet ungrateful, while we were settling for less. He came to us not to condemn us, Came to teach us. And He came to feed us. It's like, it's, it's as if this mother that we are just talking about, she's dropping off a hot meal for her son who's cut off ties, who's refusing to acknowledge even her existence. She comes to him in compassion. She comes to offer him this home-cooked meal. That, that is the image of God. There's something in, in our mother's that we see the image of God reflected. This is the God who says in Psalm 81, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. This is the God who says in Isaiah 55, Come everyone who thirsts and he who has no money, come buy without money and drink. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. This is the meaning of the shepherd king. He comes teaching us through this compassion of God, this meaning of life, the way out of death. Listen to him, and eat. Be taught by him, and feast. And what does he feed us? Ultimately what he feeds us is his mercy. His manna from heaven his mercy from heaven. He feeds us a hot plate of mercy. You guys remember um, Merchant of Venice from high school, English class? The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives, and it blesseth him that takes. God was blessed to give it, to give mercy. He was pleased to give it. And those who receive it are happy to do so. How does he give it to us? Here's how Jesus describes this bread, this mercy from heaven. He says in John chapter 6, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Eat of me and you will live. And what he meant by that was, I'm going to give myself up as, as an offering of mercy, a mercy offering for you. And I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. I'm doing it gladly. I'm laying it down willingly and gladly because it's my Father's will to save those who believe. And that meant for him, that meant for Jesus. His death. But for those of us who believe in Him, it means life eternal. What He felt as body being torn to pieces, we taste as bread broken into pieces. That's mercy. That's mercy. And that's how we receive this meaning, by receiving this Lord, receiving this Christ, this shepherd king into our lives. It's acknowledging how great His love is, how great His mercy is for us. And it makes those of us who believe in it want to feast on it more and more. It ignites this new hunger for God, this new craving for God that we did not have before. Once we taste mercy, we will never have enough of it. It it may not always be this high, this spiritual high, this ecstasy but you will always know deep down that deep down that nothing will satisfy you like God's mercy can. That apart from Him, it's like what we sang, nothing in your hand you bring, nothing. And naked you must come to Him for dress. If you found this mercy, or or when you realize this mercy has found you, put your rest in it, put your trust in it. Find your meaning, your significance, your security in Him. And follow Him. Obey Him. Thank Him. Worship Him. And grow in your knowledge of Him. Because that's a sign that you're feeding on the bread from heaven. That's a sign that you're headed towards eternal meaning, eternal life. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, His eternal country. He said, "If, if I find nothing, nothing in this life really satisfying me, that, that deep yearning I have for longing, and satis- longing for satisfaction, if nothing in this material world can satisfy that, that the, prob- the most probable explanation for that is that I was made for another country. If you have a desire for this meaning, you are made for another country. Follow your shepherd king. Let him lead you there. Let him lead you to your true home, to your true country. That's where you were made for. And that's where you will find rest. In His green pastures, feeding on His mercies forever. That's the church. That's who we are. And for those of us who believe that, we have to learn how to share this. We have to learn how to share this meaning with our friends and our neighbors, our family members, who struggle to find meaning in life, who struggle to find meaning in what they do, in their relationships, in their accomplishments, they struggle to find meaning, share this meaning with them. Share Jesus with them so they can taste of it. So they can find meaning. Find meaning in living, in eating, and just in being. Imitate your shepherd king. and Be a shepherd to others. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that your kindness feeds us, feeds our souls, nourishes our spirits. God, may we cling to this food, the spiritual food that we need, so that we would find meaning in everything else. Help us rejoice in our Savior and in our Lord more than anything else, so that in everything we will be able to rejoice. Lord, for those of us who are struggling to find you, come and find us. Be the shepherd who comes and seeks and saves the lost. Help us to want to be found. Help us to want to be sought after. Give us this renewed hunger for you, a renewed hunger for this true meaning you give us. We pray in Jesus name.